Well, we are now in Mark chapter 11 at the very end. We're going to be getting into a little bit of, well, a, a good section of chapter 12. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gathering of, the, of saints. We, we thank you that we are here to worship you. Lord God, we know um, how easy it is for our lives to get uh, to be filled with distractions, to focus on ourselves, on our problems, on our little worlds, on our little kingdoms. And we thank you for this opportunity every week to come and to set our hearts upon you, set our eyes upon you, set our minds upon you again, to be refreshed, to be refocused, to be invigorated. We pray, Lord God, that we would receive your word now in faith and that we would um, apply it to our lives in faith. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his witness and the witness of John the Baptist. We thank you that uh, they were men who stood up and were on the right side of history. And as we consider their ministry today, we pray, Lord God, that you would show us where we are on the wrong side of history, on the wrong side of God, that we may come to you again and be forgiven. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we find Jesus at the beginning of this story, right back in the temple. Uh, there has been some time between his turning tables over and throwing things around, right? He left, he went to the fig tree, and now, in the beginning of this story, he's back at the temple. It doesn't tell us how, how long it's been. It could be the same day, it could be the next day, it could be several days later. Uh, we are in this story, in, at this point in the story, in the last week of Jesus' life. So the days here, uh, you can they sort of have a tradition as to which day of the week this was. Uh, this is generally considered to be Tuesday, but I can neither prove nor deny that. Jesus is back at the temple. And the authorities, all of the authorities, every possible group who has power in Israel sends uh, some, author some of representatives to Jesus to, to question him. At this particular moment, this is the first time that Jesus has come up against the entire ruling class of Israel. Representatives, all the big dogs are there. The Pharisees are there, the temple um, leaders are there, the high priest representatives are there, the political, the religious, everybody. Everybody is here to ask him this question. Now often the story that I'm, I'm, I'm about to read to you is explained as simply Jesus um, being very tricky and evading answering this question that could possibly get him into trouble. They're asking him where his authority comes from. And he doesn't answer the question. He evades it. And generally, the way that this is dealt with is because he doesn't yet want to set them off to put him to death. But they're already trying to put him to death. Right? Jesus is not being evasive here. He actually answers their question quite clearly. But he does it in a tricky way that because he is Jesus, because he likes the what they call the Socratic method, he, he's asking questions to draw the truth that they already know out of them. This is what he really wants. He wants uh, his hearers, hearers, readers, he wants you to come to the realization that you already have. He wants you to see you already know. Now, Jesus is not merely toying with them. I want to be very clear. He is toying with them, but that's not the only thing that he's doing. Jesus is not avoiding answering the question. This exchange is an introduction to the parable that he's about to tell. A parable about the fact that when it comes to messengers of God, the leaders of Israel are all too often on the wrong side of history. Now this is what we read in chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. 
And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why did you not believe in him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The temple authorities came angrily demanding to know in whose name this Galilean marches into the temple and starts turning tables over. He's there, he's teaching, he's instructing. He comes into the city and everyone is hailing him as a king. He comes into the temple and he starts acting like he owns the place. And they want to know, who do you think you are? Where do you get off? Who sent you? Only such rabbinic authority or commissioning could warrant and justify to them his cavalier way. He has to have some authority. Somebody had to give him this authority because for them, authority is not something that you just have all by yourself. Right? You can't just wake up, decide to become the high priest. You, right? This is the whole Old Testament. It depends very much your authority on who, whose family you're in, what did God say to you, who commissioned you, where did you come from, and where did Jesus come from? Right? Well, we're all readers. We've been here for 11 chapters. We know where Jesus came from. We know where his authority comes from. Anybody who's heard anything about him should at this point have a pretty good idea as to who he is and where he's come from. Jesus could not be more direct in answering their inquiry. Both John and Jesus are both obviously the servants of God commissioned for God's work. Jesus is doing greater things than John. John is considered by many to be a prophet. Well, if John was a prophet, and look at what he did, Jesus is doing greater things, who is he? Right? Jesus is asking this question, pointing out the fact that you, you know why, right? You know who I am. You know where I come from. You know what I am up to. The question, the real question isn't, right? The burden of proof is not on Jesus. The burden, the burden is them. Do they accept it? Right? It's clear where he's coming from. That's not the question. The question is, do they accept his authority? Do they accept his position? That is really what is going on here. The greatest condemnation of the Jewish leaders is that they do not seem to have considered that the question he's asking is a moral probe, not an intellectual trap. He's asking them point blank. Are you of God or are you not? Are you holy and righteous men or aren't you? Are you on the right side of history or the wrong side? Are you on the right side of God or on the wrong side? They did not intend to reply with a true or false answer, but instead considered what is safe and unsafe. Think about this. He's asking them a question, a direct question. And instead of saying yes or no, we believe it or we don't, they're, they're playing politics. They're carefully considering what they're going to say. And this is what happens when people are considering their own safety, their own protection, their own um, reputations. How often have we been asked a point-blank question about our faith and we do exactly the same thing? Well, if I say that, they'll think I'm a wacko. If I say that, that's not what my pastor teaches me is true. It's not what my dad taught me was true. But I can't say that because that would be embarrassing to say right now. 
Jesus has come to people who are religious. Right? This is not a sermon about how Jesus comes to unbelievers and starts asking them questions. These are people who are as in as you can get. They're running the religious institutions of Israel, and he's asking them point blank, are you of God or aren't you? Right? It seems like, oh, I'm for God, or I'm not. Right? Sin, if you're going to sin, as Luther said, at least sin boldly. And you understand in this situation exactly what he meant. Don't haggle with me here, just say it. But they play politics. As a crowning irony, they blandly say they don't know. I don't know. It's a good question, Jesus. Now, how foolish is this? <laughs> Everybody's standing around watching them. They're in the temple of the Lord, and their, their, their wise idea is to say, I don't know. They look like fools. And, and, and foolishness is a moral problem. This is what Proverbs makes very clear. What they don't realize is that this is a moral test for them, not an intellectual one. Jesus' question was not meant as a trap. It was yet another opportunity for them to realize and confess their blindness and ask for sight. Think about it. Right? Does, when, when they ask, where do you get off doing this, Jesus? Jesus doesn't start turning tables over again and say, how dare you ask me where I get the authority to do this? He gently answers them in a way that is, is inviting in, more inquiry, more insight, more investigation on their part. He's luring them in. He's not just getting all hostile. Jesus is being very careful and very loving and very slow and very compassionate even now. They've already, it's already stated that they're seeking to kill him. They're not for him. They're not for John. They're not for God. And he doesn't give them a sharp word. He gives them a soft one at this particular moment. He's asking them to humble themselves, to seek understanding, to seek unity with him. But what they're doing is committing the unforgivable sin. They're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit, and they're calling it, they're, they're denying that it's of God. And that's what the unforgivable sin is. When you see something that God is doing, and you call it of the devil, you say it is wicked and evil, that is the unforgivable sin. And, and at this point, have they proven to have a track record of this? Right? <laughs> I don't want anyone to get scared. If you deny the Holy Spirit one time, you've committed the unforgivable sin, and we're going to have Keith throw you out of the church. No, that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> okay? It's a track record here. They've come to Jesus for 11 chapters again and again and again, and they've said, this is not of God. And here they are. He's asking them point blank. Here's their opportunity to come clean. Here's their opportunity to get on the right side. And they say, I don't know. It's apathetic even. It's not even hostile. It's just apathetic. Eh. The leaders of Israel rejected the prophet John. Right? The people say he's a prophet. They've rejected him as a prophet. Here is Jesus. He's a prophet. He's speaking to them, and they're getting ready to reject him. The leaders of Israel have always rejected the prophets of God. That's what they've always done. This, is, this story that is happening here is not new. This is a story that is repeated from Kings and Chronicles and Samuel again and again and again and again. And so Jesus is now going to judge them. Just like he judged the temple, he doesn't want to make it simply about institutions. It's not just about the fact that the temple is going to come crashing down. These people are going to be judged and thrown out. This is very important. It's, it, this, he is a personal God. It's not merely about buildings. It's not merely about programs. It's about people. And this is what he says to them. 
And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will, of course, respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out into the vineyard. And what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, of course. For they perceived that they had told the parable against them, and so they left him and went away. Now, suddenly, that's, suddenly Jesus' words are quite clear. The parable of the defiant tenants reflected the social background of Jewish Galilee at the time. Most of the land in this area is not actually owned by Jews. It's owned by Romans. And the Romans come, and they have these vineyards, and they have this land, but they're not from there. They don't want to stay there. Why would they stay there when they could go back to Rome? So they lent the land out to sharecroppers, and the sharecroppers take care of the land, and they leave. So this parable actually has a lot of significance for the people listening to it because they understand all too well this is exactly how most of (laughs) a lot of the farmland in Israel actually works. Many of them have absentee owners. Recently discovered documents found in an archaeological dig and the recorded rabbinic parables show that this is a situation that was common for 280 years leading up to Jesus. So he's not just picking some random story. This is a story that, that, that they are used to not only hearing about, because they live in this culture, but many of them, rabbinic teachers, use this as an example for uh, religious purposes. The story concerns a landowner who leased a vineyard to tenant farmers who agreed to work the land in his absence as long as they produce fruit. Sounds familiar, right? Jesus came to the fig tree, what didn't it have? Fruit. He came to the temple, what didn't it have? Fruit. He's come to the land, and what doesn't it have? Right? He wants the fruit of the land. But instead of giving up the fruit of the land, what they want to do is murder him. The parable is meant, even here, Jesus is being so compassionate. This parable is meant to invoke some self-reflection. The prophet Nathan did this very same thing to David in 2 Samuel 12. And that's a story where David is high-handed with Bathsheba. He's messing around. He's killing people. He doesn't seem to realize that this is sinful. And so Nathan comes and tells him a story about a far, a little wimpy, weak, poor farmer who is little, tiny, weak, little sheep. And he tells this whole story to David. And David's like, man... Is this true? Did this really happen? I'm going to kill this guy. And Nathan says, ah, it's you. I'm talking about you. And that's how David realizes he sinned. This is very common in the Bible. This is actually, if you stop and think about it, what the Bible itself is. It's, it's stories about other people that are meant for us to see our own lives. And so even here, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus isn't start smacking them around like I would. You dummies. He says, yeah, let me, let me tell you a story. 
Because what he wants is them to have a broken and contrite heart. (laughs) And Jesus is the word of God. He cannot stay away from the word of God. What what I found fascinating was, I I did not realize this, but in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, this is where he gets the idea for this story. This is what it says. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, what did it, it, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, or, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Jesus isn't just some guy. He he is a guy, don't get me wrong. But he's not just some guy. He was sent by the Father to live the history of Israel. To be its representative, to embody it. And here he is, he's come to God's people looking for fruit, and the first thing he thinks of is the vineyard song, they call it, from Isaiah. Now let me be very clear, some of you may not have read about what happens to the temple in 70 AD, but it's not good. <laughs> they, after they burned the temple to the ground, they actually had to move all of the foundation stones because all the gold had melted down into these giant sheets. And they moved the stones and pulled the sheets of gold out and took them back to Rome. And then, after they'd killed everybody, as a finishing touch, they actually sowed salt into the ground so that nothing would grow. It's a shockingly unfertile place, actually, Jerusalem. But it wasn't always this way. Have you ever thought, have you ever seen pictures of of, of what is modern Israel? And you think, that's the land of milk and honey? What what happened? Well, the vineyard the hedge came down. The protection went away. Jesus is not messing around. He wants them to understand who they are. He wants them to understand what they have done. He wants them to understand what they're planning. You've killed all the other prophets. Now the son is here. And what are you going to do to the son? Well, he prophesies, because he's a prophet, that they're going to murder him. And this doesn't get anybody to slow down for a moment and think about what they're doing. The Old Testament prophets are frequently designated the servants of God. And it is natural to find a reference to their rejection in the words, beating some, killing others. Right? What do we hear today from 1 Kings? That story. Right? Is there no other prophet? We've heard from all these prophets. Is there no other prophet? And they say, well, there's one prophet, but he never gives me good news. Right? And Jehoshaphat, who, who is a righteous king, is like, well, we should probably hear from that guy. Because if he's the guy that's always giving you bad news, he's probably from God. Right? And all the Christians are like, wait, what? No. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We are worse than we think we are. There's a person I'm trying to work with, and, and if we could just come together on this, it is worse than we think. We are not who we think we are. 
right? Turn to the Bible. Show me somebody who knows exactly who they are. Who knows, ex- <laughs> who knows what they're about. The troubler of Israel is the prophet that we all need. Someone who sits down with us and says, listen, I don't know how to tell you this, but God says you're going to be destroyed if you keep doing what you're doing. Now, raise your hand if you're a person in this room who, if you carry on the way that you're carrying on, unrepentant, that you will not be destroyed. Right? This is, this is where everybody's at. Everybody needs what Elijah was called. <laughs> like, this is, man, I wish this was t-shirts. We can make t-shirts of this. The troubler of Israel. Right? I'm the, I'm the troubler of Israel? No, you're the troubler of Israel. <laughs> I'm the guy trying to save it. And that's how they see Jesus. Jesus is the troubler of Israel. He's coming around. He's causing trouble. He's stirring up the people who are supposed to just fawn over all these religious leaders. And, and what he's doing is he's, he's causing trouble. And then he's going to cause trouble with the Romans. Right? And that's what, what right? The, the high priest later says, we need to remove one guy to save the whole country from the Romans destroying us. Where's the troubler of Israel? Who is the troubler of Israel? Are you? Why not? Right? This whole story here is, to, is Jesus trying to demonstrate to them that the religious people don't realize how bad things really are. They don't realize what side they're really on. They, they think they're on the right side of history. And what has history proven in, in Israel? That they're not usually on the right side of history. Now, I mean, for an example, I don't have time to go through like all 2,000 years, but if I had a history of the church book, I could show that this actually is still true, right? Luther, that drunk monk, as they called him, the boar let loose in the vineyard, they called it. Does he sound like a troubler of Israel? Well, he was a troubler of Israel. (sighs) My son was reading this book called For Christ's Crown. He's like, Dad... Every story was like this. Some guy makes trouble in Scotland. They, they put him to death. Some person in his congregation suddenly starts making trouble. He runs into the hills. They hang him. I'm like, yes, welcome to Scottish Reformation, baby. <laughs> the leaders of Israel cannot discern the difference between the messenger of God and a false prophet. They cannot discern the difference between the message of God and a false message. Can you? Can you? Many of you, I look out and I see your beautiful faces every week. Can you tell the difference when I am, can you tell the difference when I'm saying something that's true and something that's not? I was thinking about this recently. It's actually quite terrible. If people really don't know their Bibles, I could get up here and I could say all kinds of things. And it would be months before anyone found out. Right? There's been twice in the last two years where I actually later found out I said something that wasn't true. Right? Because I'm not infallible. But have you ever, right? (laughs) This is the modern church. Show me where the building is. Tell me what the programs are. Where do I sit on Sunday? Feed me, baby. And you're like, well, what what is that guy feeding you? I don't know. He's got a Bible. I mean, look. Look at how the Bible's open right in front of him. How could it be wrong? What happened when a messenger of God came and gave them the message of God? What, how did, they, how did re- Israel respond in the Old Testament? How did these tenant farmers respond? Somebody comes and says, hey, why aren't you guys being fruitful? 
And, and the guy, right, a minister comes. He writes a book. He says, hey, where's the fruit, modern American church? He's like, oh, look at this guy with his works righteousness. Get him out of here. Right? And then you have this other Yahoo down here in Texas, Olstein, who's got this pyramid scheme. Well, apparently this is, this is actually a pretty, pretty good idea. Is Hey, if, if, if you preach the good news and you live your life for Jesus, you, you will get rich. Now, now, everyone here, give me your money. And then a little while later you say, see, I'm rich. Everyone's like, oh, it does work. Right? Now, that kind of gospel is quite common. But how, how do we respond when a real troubler of Israel shows up? How, how do we even know who it is? There's a lot going on in the church these days outside of our four beautiful walls here. And, 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 and big Eva, as we're calling some people are calling it, big evangelicalism is now throwing, they, they want to throw the troublers of Israel out. And there are, are well-meaning men who are preaching the good news in our denomination who can't get book deals, who can't get invited to a conference to save their lives. Right? It, the, the trouble that used to be, that we used to think existed outside the church, actually turns out was in the church all along. Who are the troublers of Israel? When we, when we go and Zondervan is selling the next book, is it, is, it, is it a book that we want to read about religious things because it makes us feel better about our religious faith? Or when we read, right? When's the last time you read a book where you thought, man, where did that guy get off? Give me all that trouble. Right? When's, <laughs> when's the last time we wanted to read a book like that? Now, Jesus here tells the story about the vineyard. He's making the point. The religious people can't discern the difference between the good messengers and the bad, the good messages and the bad. There's no fruit, and they're going to kill the son. But he wants us to be assured that don't matter. The thing that they rejected, the stone that they rejected, that they threw down into the valley, is in fact the cornerstone of a new temple. Because what he said, what's going to happen to the old temple? It's not going to be there much longer. What's going to happen to all these people? Well, the, the farm is going to get taken away from them, and it's going to be given to others. And, and what he references is Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected. And this is actually a story in Israel where, where they were building the temple, and they had all these stones perfectly cut out, and, and they get them one by one, right? They're getting the shipments delivered from Home Depot, and, they're, and somebody's checking the box to make sure all the rocks are there. Sorry, stones, I don't know, boulders, I don't know, whatever you build a giant temple out of. And they're like, well, this one, I don't know what this one is. What's number 13? I've never, what is, number 13 doesn't fit on my schematic here. And so they took this giant stone and they threw it into this rubble pile that they had outside of Jerusalem. And then later on, when they're building the, the porch on this giant temple, somebody says, hey, where's the corner piece? Well, I sent it. What do you mean? I sent it back with the shipments long ago. It, it, we got it done early, so we sent it already. They're like, oh, oh no. So then they had to rig up a system to drag this giant stone that they had thrown down into this pit out, clean it off, <laughs> and then take it and finish the porch. Now, this is the actual story that happened. right? And here's Jesus, and, and he is... He said what's happening in the old temple. He said what's happening to the people who are running the, the farm. 
He's the stone, and they're rejecting him. But he's telling his people, listen, listen, that one that they're rejecting, right? They're going to throw it down into a pit, but it's not going to stay in the pit. You're going to need it to build a new temple. This isn't the end of the story. And the people in Jesus' life needed to hear this. Mark's original readers need to hear this, and we need to hear this, don't we? Because the right side of history is what? God and, and redemptive history and his plans and his plans which will not fail, his plans that he began in you, that he will finish. Rejection of the Son is followed by the vindication of the first public prophecy. Jesus is telling them what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is that history is going to roll on. And the people who are on the wrong side of it are going to be under it. Don't fear. Don't fear, he's telling them. This is what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, what does this mean? Then? He's the cornerstone of a new building. You are being built on top of the prophets and the apostles. Who does that make us? Who are we? What are we? Right? This, is, this is what I've been trying to get us to understand lately. We, we have an authority problem. We have an, uh, uh, we're lacking the ability always to discern the difference between God's messengers and God's message. And, and we do not know who we really are. That was what my Thanksgiving Day sermon was about. You are priests. You are children of God. Priests of God. Prophets of God. Wait, what did that guy just say? Suddenly we're a Pentecostal church? Everybody's a prophet? No, please, don't start prophesying right now. That's not what I mean. But what do we know? From Acts chapter 2, verse 18, it says this, Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. John Frame explains in the most basic level that what makes a prophet a prophet. The word of God is in their mouth. See, in the Old Testament, what God needed was people to, to stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. And it was important that everyone knew what the Lord said, and so they wrote it down. Then the last prophet of all comes, Jesus, and, and he, right, he's the last messenger. And he tells everyone what they need to know, and he lives exactly the way everyone needs to know how to live. And then they write it all down because it's important to know. And then what they do, right, is take this book, and, they, and he, gives it, he and gives it to the church, and the church hears the shepherd's voice, and they follow him. Right? We don't need anybody to add to it. All we need is somebody to explain it. Well, Mike, that's what I thought we paid you for. Okay, that's true. Don't, I, yes, true. Keep doing that. That's good. But I'm not the only one who can explain it, right? Uh, if you listen from time to time, you'll hear, man, uh, I, I'm not even the best at explaining it. I'm not asking anybody to write the second book of confusions that we can then staple into everybody's copy of the Bible. Thus saith the Lord. That, that, that's you. You're the one who has to say what the Lord said. You're the one. When the little kid comes to you and they don't, right? And they're like, well, you know, I don't understand. How is Jesus in my heart and in heaven at the same time? And if you're any, like me, you're like, oh my gosh, you guys, it's 10 o'clock. 
It's 10 o'clock at night. What are you doing asking me this question now? How come nobody ever asked me this question at 10 o'clock in the morning? You've got the, you know, you have a wife, and she wants to know, why is it that if God loves children, she can't have any? You've got the crazy Anne who's like, well, why are you homeschooling? You don't, you, you, you don't even have a degree. Right? You're not a professional teacher. Thank God. I'm just going to say that. Thank God you're not. Go to. Because at this point, I would rather put my kids in like the least <laughs> right, professional teacher I can find. Um, <laughs> it's everywhere now, too. I mean... I, I, I go to Starbucks, and you know what? They used to have men's bathrooms and women's bathrooms. They don't now. We go to the zoo, and there's a women's bathroom and a men's bathroom. And it's not the kind you can lock, and so what am I going to do? Send my daughter in there? I don't know who's in there. So now i got to be the guy that just goes, Ugh. now i got to check all the bathrooms. Right? And, and, and so this is the, <laughs> the prophets came, and they, and they told people what the Word of God says. And how were how did people respond? Did they like it? Did they say, "Oh, thank you"? You know what we're going to do? <laughs> we're going to promote you. Or what, they beat them and maligned them. They accused them of things and, and and cursed them. James chapter five verse ten and eleven. This is what it says: As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James is telling believers. People who believe in Jesus Christ. People who believe in the victory of Jesus Christ. People who believe that Jesus is the ruler of heaven and earth. Take as your example the prophets, especially that one called Job. Now, that's not a message that's going to sell well. Wait, you mean the guy who God in his infinite mercy, that is very confusing, and wisdom decided to let loose on Job through Satan? That that's the guy you want me to have as an example? But we, you know, I have this, I, I've said this kind of thing before, and then I got this question, well, you want me to take the prophets as the example? Well, do you realize that the prophets did really bizarre things? Uh, yes, yes I do. I know Hosea was told to marry a prostitute. Please, young men, that's not what I'm asking you to do. Isaiah was ordered by God to walk around naked for two years. Again, please don't do that. Okay, I will bail you out. I'd rather not. <laughs> Jeremiah was commanded by God to wear a loincloth and not wash it, and then bury it in the desert. And then several years later, go back and dig it up. And when he held it up, God said, there, thou, now you know how unclean Israel is. Well, thanks, God. <laughs> I think I get it. I, I get it. Right? And you go back and you read the Word of God, and is that what is that what we're to be? No. No. I don't think we have to try that hard to be that, that weird. Right? For the life of my neighbors, they could not figure out why we struggle along with one income. Well, I mean, your wife seems capable. Actually, she probably could make more money than you. That's actually true. 
Why don't you just put her to work? Well, um, you know, we have children. And the most important thing that she does is raise souls. So, right, we leave poultry things like making money to me. She's there every day raising souls. That seems more important. She's the truck carrying the kids. I'm just the snowplow on the front getting things out of the way. Bills, wolves, the cold. Right? Where's the real work being done? Now, how does that play? (laughs) Right? How does that play? I recently explained how in my household, I don't think my, right, my wife having the right to vote is superfluous. So I fill out her ballot for her. She doesn't really care. Because I, back in the day, you used to only have one vote per household. Now, rather, you, there are some disagreements with me as reasonable ones. But just the fact that I said that, I think the person was just sort of wandered off from the conversation and they'll probably never talk to me again for saying something so backwards. I mean, I'm, I'm glad I didn't even mention the fact that women ought not to be in patrol cars as police people, right? I can actually show you a study, this is true, and I don't think we're going to be surprised by this, that actually um, policemen being hurt on the job, even killed, increased when they allowed women to go in patrol cars. <laughs> now, again, I'm a fallible person. But what does the word of God say? Does the word of God say that women ought to be dressing in BDUs and picking up a rifle and taking a spot on the line? Flying airplanes that drop bombs on people? Right? Is that what God made women for? Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. What does that mean? Right? I've, I've explained what it means. But you're prophets of God. Right? I'm, I'm, did God really say? How about I just play devil's advocate? I thought about this as a sermon idea one time. As I get up here and I don't actually teach anything, I just ask a bunch of rhetorical questions for 45 minutes. Did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really say? Right? Who, whose tactic is that? The number one tactic. He did it to Adam. He did it to Jesus. He does it to everybody. Did God really say? And the prophets of God who say, thus saith the Lord, are able to respond to that kind of question. The, the problem is we, we, leave it, we leave it to others to do that kind of work. Right? We have religious professionals who read all the books and do all the studying, and they're the ones who think about these things, and they try to you know, condense all of that down into a nice, compact, 45-minute message that gives me like the three steps to be a more righteous person. That's the message that we all want. Right? Not... not Somebody get down and saying that's fig leaf Christianity, and if you go that direction, you will end up in hell. Right? Where's the troubler of Israel? I'm looking at them. I'm looking at them. Okay, and it goes, it cuts both ways. Right? You should have no children, and you should put them all to death. This is the way of the world. But I would like to keep it a little closer here and say, okay, you should have just absolutely as many as you possibly can. Right? This is the rejection. This is like, we're going to reject the world and go the other way. And so now you have these little ghettos in Christianity that have all these different things that they do and these different things that they, that, that they use to identify themselves as being God's people that are not identifiers for God's people. Right? You, you can be a child of God and have ten kids, but that doesn't make you a child of God. 
if Jesus were to show up here today, who would he say are the prophets of God? Who would he say? What would he say is the message that they're preaching that we're not listening to? What would he expect out of you? Right? He knows your situation. He knows what has been going on at work. He knows what's been going on in your family. He knows what's going on when you go grocery shopping. Are you the church or do you go to church? Are you the prophets of God? Can you tell the difference? Can you tell the difference between the message that comes from heaven and a message that comes from men? I can do only so much. Right? I'm only with you for 45 minutes of here once a week. There's a lot of hours that stress me out. And I can't do anything about them. Only you can. What does the Word of God say about fill in the blank? You have this difficult situation in your life. Is the first thing you did is get out the Word of God and study it? Right? The Lord said, let the word dwell in you richly. Is it? You're constantly bombarded by, did God really say? And we're how often incapable of answering the question. Are you on the right side of history? Are, Are you like these religious people who go to the temple, but it's just fig leaf temple? There's no fruit in it. Are you the kind of person (laughs) who has all the scrolls and honors all the scrolls and we cover the scrolls in these really nice bits of leather here? This is actually really nice leather. Look how much I revere it. See, this is partially why I wanted this one, isn't it? I really love the Word of God, don't I? It's beautiful. Do I know what's in it? Right? It, It makes me nervous when I go to people's house and the only Bible they have is one that's this nice that they won't write in. You're like, how do you, it, how do you remember where it was if you don't? Don't just have nice Bibles. Have a Bible that you consume, because in it is the Word of God, and that's what you need. That's what you need. That's what your wife and your husband need. That's what your children need. That's what the person in the pew next to you needs. It's what this world needs. Is the Word of God? Is it on your lips? Is it dwelling in you richly? Are you prophets of God? Can you tell the difference between prophets and false prophets? Can you tell the difference between the message of God and the false message? Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your grace and your goodness. We know, Lord God, that you have provided everything that we need. You have provided the scriptures. You have provided the spirit to give us discernment, to understand them. You have provided a place for us to come and to commune with you and to commune with one another, to be built up and to build one another up. We have everything we need. We pray, Lord God, that these gifts would not lie fruitless in our hands but that we would take all of this abundant grace, this endless grace that you've given us, and that we would be fruitful. We would be fruitful in in, in our study of the Word of God and in our prayer life and in our faith, that we would be fruitful in our marriages and in our homes and in our businesses. Lord God, what do we not have? How are we unprepared? We thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your... Lord, your long-suffering kindness. Amen.